Good morning, everyone. Hey, hey, hey. This is a rough morning, hey? The heat is awful. And uh, every time somebody's greeting, they're having this, to ask for multiple attempts at a, at a response. So let me, let me, let me uh, join in there, wake you guys up a little bit more. Good morning, everyone. Okay, much better. Thank you. Okay, so, my joy to bring God's Word to you this morning. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we're going to be spending some time in the book of Romans and quite literally looking at the most important truth that you can ever know and understand. The most important truth that you can ever know and understand. Every single truth in the Bible is important, of course, and we don't want to get anything wrong. But the simple fact of the matter is that some truths in the Bible you can be wrong about. You can be wrong about and you're still going to heaven. You can be wrong about a number of things and still live a faithful, fruitful Christian life. But if you are wrong about the gospel, the consequences are huge. If you are wrong about the gospel, what? Okay, this is interesting. Yes? Better? No? Fine? Okay, I need to be closer. And how about that? Yeah? Okay. Alright. If you're wrong about the gospel, then you're still an enemy of God. If you're wrong about the gospel, you have no eternity in His presence. You can't have a relationship with God without the gospel. And probably the single greatest explanation of the gospel anywhere in our Bibles is in the book of Romans. And that's why that's where we'll be over the next few weeks. And the gospel is a a multifaceted truth. Uh, There's different ways of looking at it. We can talk about our adoption in Christ. We can talk about being delivered. We can talk about being redeemed. But Probably the clearest, most central, the heart of the gospel is to look at justification. Justification. And that's what we see in the book of Romans in particular. We need to know about justification. Unfortunately, what the Bible teaches about justification is very often either unknown or misunderstood. And that's even true with a lot of people who call themselves Christians. A lot of people who grew up in the church. Often you discover that they haven't really properly understood this key doctrine. And then even when people do understand this doctrine, they do have a biblical view of justification. 
The sad thing is that it is a difficult truth for us to remember. It is a difficult truth for us to, to live in light of day by day. Our natural inclination as human beings is to think in a way that is contrary to the gospel. And we'll see that more and more as we keep talking about this over the next few weeks. And the truth of justification is that it is not just vital for us becoming Christians. It's not just vital for us beginning a relationship with God. It is a vital truth for our day-to-day Christian life. There is nothing that will help us live more joyfully and more fruitfully as Christians than a vivid, daily living in light of justification. When we forget it, it has massive effects. Pastor Josh Mack used to say that Forgetting what the Bible teaches about justification is not quite the cause of every problem in the Christian life, but it's pretty close. Okay, think about that. Pastor, after many years of, of pastoral ministry, says, not living in light of justification, forgetting about justification, is pretty close to the, the source of every problem in the Christian life. So, that's another reason we want to spend some good time on the subject over the next few weeks. Because it's vital for becoming a Christian, essential for becoming a Christian, and because it's so practical, helpful, and fruitful for the Christian life. Specifically today, we're going to be thinking about our need for justification. Our need for justification We won't understand what the Bible teaches about justification, and we certainly won't be as excited about it, gripped by it, as we should be, until we truly feel our need for justification. John Calvin once said, We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ until we first know that we have no righteousness of our own. We have no righteousness of our own. This is hugely significant. You will never go to heaven until you understand that you deserve hell. You will never go to heaven until you understand that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. In the book of Romans, Paul makes a thorough argument for justification. And he starts by first making our need for justification clear. He does that in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Now, obviously, that's a big stretch of Scripture, and we're not going to be able to go through it in the sort of detail that we typically do in a sermon. But we'll we'll go through it in an overview kind of way today to trace Paul's argument for why each and every one of us, each and every one of us, needs God's plan for justification. This argument presupposes something we often tend to forget today. And that is the clear and consistent picture the Bible gives us that God is a holy and just judge. 
So that's the first thing we need to understand in order to grasp our need for justification. God is a holy and just judge. You see, justification is a legal term. If you looked it up in a theology book or a Bible dictionary, you might find that it's, it's called a forensic term, which means that it is a word, a technical word, having to do with law courts, judges, and the act of acquitting or vindicating someone. That is, the act of finding somebody not guilty. So, right, if a person has a dispute with someone else, he might take them to court, and then what is the judge's job? The judge's job is to look at the law, and to look at what this person has done, and to then consider in this situation, have they broken the law or not? Are they innocent or are they guilty? And the judge either declares them guilty or the judge justifies them, declaring them not guilty. The book of Romans uses this same language and applies it to God. And as we've said, this should not be surprising to us because throughout the Bible, God is referred to as a judge. The Bible speaks of a, and, and the Bible speaks of God as a judge who judges justly. He is a judge who operates according to justice. He has laws and he evaluates us and makes accurate, fitting decisions about us in accordance with those laws. Take Psalm 96 as one example. Psalm 96 verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Okay, in other words, God is king. King over all the nations. And then the verse continues. The world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. God is judge over all the peoples of the earth. And He will judge them with equity. That is, He will judge all people equally according to the same standards. And He will judge with righteousness. He will judge according to good and right standards. He will make good and right decisions. God always does what is right. He always does what is just. And He demands the same of the people He created. He's ordered this world a certain way, and He expects His creation to live according to His standards. In other words, God made us, God owns us, and we are accountable to Him. And there is a day coming in which His righteous judgment will be revealed. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans chapter 2 verse 8 says, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
hear that again. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And those are not words we like to associate with God. We prefer to think of God as loving and forgiving. God is love, right? And amen, He is. But we cannot neglect what the Bible also says about Him as a holy and just judge. We may prefer to think of God uh, to think of God as a little different to this. We might prefer to uh, recreate Him and imagine Him as someone we can be more comfortable with, someone who would be less concerned by our sin. But that is not the picture the Bible gives us. I once heard a story about someone who was married and away from his wife while he was uh, doing a course of study. And sadly, this man made a habit of regularly going to visit prostitutes on a Friday evening. He told his Christian friend about this, and his Christian friend said to him at some point, aren't you concerned? God sees this. God will punish you for this. And the man's response was, Ah, God, it's his job to forgive. It's his job to forgive. Now, of course, the Bible is wonderfully clear that God does forgive. But is that how he forgives? To just look the other way, to just take sin lightly? No. This is not what the Bible tells us about God at all. It is a lie to believe that because God is loving, He will therefore just overlook sin. The Bible clearly tells us that the God of love is also the God who is angry about sin who feels wrath towards sin, who will punish sin. And the wrath that God has towards sin is right. He sees sin for what it is. He doesn't hate it too much or too little. He has the exact right attitude towards sin. In fact, if he didn't have that attitude towards sin, then we couldn't consider him to be holy. We couldn't consider Him to be righteous. And He wouldn't be a God worthy of worship. Now that is the biblical backdrop we need to keep in mind as we work our way through Romans here. And here in Romans, like a good lawyer, Paul builds a careful and solid case for why each and every one of us needs justification. First of all, he shows us that those without God's word are guilty. Those without God's word are guilty. And what, what do I mean by this? Well, it's, it's a common argument out there for people to say, uh, well, you know, what about those people who've never heard about Jesus? What about those who, who don't know about God, who, who've never had the Bible? Surely God doesn't view them 
as guilty because they never knew better. But here in Romans 1, Paul tells us otherwise. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's this passage saying? It's saying we might think that those who've never heard the name of Jesus, those who've never had access to a Bible, we may think that they didn't know better. But in reality, God (coughs) has clearly revealed Himself to every human being through His amazing creation. Beautiful sunsets, right? Music, delicious tastes, animals of, of spectacular variety, our own senses, what we can see and hear and, and the, the complexity of our bodies. It does not make sense that all of this just happened. It's too beautiful. It's too intricate. It's too amazing. God has made clear His eternal power, His divine nature, His, His Godness. What do we do in response, though, to what God has revealed to us? We know there must be a God out there, but verse 18 says, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We push it down. Or we hold it back, right? Imagine an overfilled cupboard, right? You've put too much in there, and you're trying to close the doors, And the doors can't really be shut because there's just too much in there. And if you leave it for a second, the doors open wide and everything inside starts tumbling out. Evidence of God's power, evidence of His amazing creativity. It is all there stuffed into the cupboard. And if we we stop suppressing it, if we stop holding the doors of that cupboard closed for just a moment all that evidence will come tumbling out but we don't want to acknowledge it because if God is God then I'm not king of my own life if God is God then I don't just get to live for myself I'm accountable to someone and so mankind suppresses this truth and convinces themselves "Ah, you know if God is real he should show us 
If God is real, why doesn't He make it more obvious? We say as we breathe and as we think. And because of this rebellion, Paul says, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. When Paul talks about God's wrath in Romans 1.18, he's actually here using a present tense verb. In other words, he's saying that God's wrath is being revealed currently. Part of God's punishment for how uh, we've turned away from Him, or how we've failed to acknowledge Him, failed to give thanks to Him, how we've instead of worshipping the Creator, have worshipped His gifts, Part of God's punishment for that is that, um, uh, uh, sorry, they, um, verse, where is it? verse 24, 26, oh, uh, sorry, verse 23, is that God gave them over. Let me see here. God gave them over. Which is a way of basically saying God gave them what they wanted. God gave them what they wanted. They wanted to turn their back away from God. They wanted to pursue uh, worshipping the creation rather than the creator. God gave them what they wanted. And the result of that is that people became progressively more and more perverted. And even though they know about judgment, as verse 132 says... They ignore it. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If we want to think about current culture, right? Now this is certainly not the only example of this sort of thing, but it is the example that Paul uses in this chapter. And that is the example of homosexuality, right? And if we think about how culture has progressed, culture has progressed to such a point now where in the world, everybody's expected not only to be okay with homosexuality, but even to celebrate it, okay? They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Our culture is, a mainstream culture is marching in a certain direction. And it's a direction we want to go in. And part of God's judgment is just to step back and let us go. To give us over. In general, people tend to think they are good people. And it's crazy, really, that we think this way when this passage says that we turn our back on God and we worship the things He's made instead of worshiping Him. We worship idols. The main one being ourselves, really. And we're controlled by lusts. And we believe lies uh, and commit sexual sins, even as we've been saying, clearly unnatural or contrary, clearly things that are contrary to the way our bodies are made. 
and yet we convince ourselves it is fitting and right. We're filled up with evil, with greed, with envy, with lying, with pride, with disobedience, with gossip. And still in the middle of all that, we can't believe that someone would say that we are not good. That someone would say we deserve judgment. And this blindness, as we've said, is part actually of God's judgment. It's part of his judgment. That as we go our own way, we're happy with ourselves. We don't see the problem. Paul's looking at them and telling us that that attitude is judgment. And it's a terrible judgment because as we, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, we will never understand justification until we come face to face, right, with the reality that we are not righteous. So to be in rebellion against God and to think you are fine is a terrifying place to be. Next, Paul shows that those who have God's word are guilty. Those who have God's word are guilty. And quite possibly, I think quite possibly the most common and serious problem here in South Africa, the, 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 the most, the most uh, weighty of problems, okay, right, we can talk about crime, we can talk about the economy, we can talk about all sorts of things. But in terms of what matters most, probably the most common and serious problem here in South Africa is how many religious people there are who say they are Christians, who believe they are Christians, but do not understand justification. And part of the obstacle for them is actually their religion. And this is true amongst both black and white people in this country. Both cultures are cultures of cultural Christianity. That quote we looked at from Calvin earlier is true, that we will never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ until we know that we have no righteousness of our own then many, many South Africans have a very big problem. How many South Africans would think, would answer, would tell you that they have always been Christians? How is that possible? If you understand justification, if you understand how it works, you have not always been a Christian. You could not always be a Christian. You had to come to see your sin. You had to realize your need for a Savior. You had to put your faith in that Savior. There was a time when you were not a Christian. For every one of us. And it's hard for people who look to their church attendance, who look to a certain level of morality, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around this concept of having no righteousness of their own. Even if they didn't go to church weekly, it's just part of their memories growing up. They're a church-going family. 
They've always kept certain rules. Maybe they've read their Bibles. They know Bible stories for sure. They've prayed before meals. And when you talk to them about Judgment Day and standing before God, it doesn't even click to them that that might be a problem for them. It doesn't register. They have no concern because I must be talking about someone else. Someone who's not a Christian. Not them. Romans 3, 19-20 is the is the end, the culmination of the argument that, that Paul builds in Romans 1, 2, and 3. This argument where he proves our need for justification. And here where he's summing everything up, right before he shifts gears and launches into a lengthy explanation of how we can be justified from uh, Romans three twenty one and following, he wants to make sure we've understood very clearly how we are not justified as you read it it's almost like he's talking to an imaginary person see what he's doing here is he he brings up it's like he's bringing up a test case as a as a method of communication it's like he lets his readers listen in as he interacts with someone who's objecting to the gospel so in chapters two and three the person that he's interacting with is someone that is very religious. Very religious. Someone who thinks they are fine with God. Paul knows that many of the people he shared the gospel with will have a hard time understanding the, um, the need of God's judgment. Their need of God's... Uh, sorry. Uh, that they need to take the idea of God's judgment seriously, them personally, because they have a false security, right, flowing out of their religious background, just like I've been saying is so common here in the South African context. So it's like Paul saying, okay, you think you're very religious, and because of your religious activity, you're going to be fine on judgment day. That's, that's what you think. Well, for the sake of argument, let's take the best the most likely case of somebody who would be fine before God based on their religiosity. Let's, let's look at that case and see whether that person would be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and be found righteous on the basis of their religious knowledge and background and activity. Okay, so in other words, you want to think that you're a Christian because you've gone to church quite a bit because you've got a pretty Christian family, quite a Christian family. Well, now let's look at someone who's gone to church every single Sunday. Let's look at somebody who was baptized when they were five, who memorized every memory verse they could possibly memorize, who sung in the church choir, who directed the church choir, okay? Who sang the solos, okay? Let's look at the most religious person you have ever met and let's ask the question will they stand before God will they be found righteous on judgment day so knowing our Bibles right if there was anyone in the entire world that you might think could maybe achieve that and be alright on the basis of their people group their religious activity their spiritual background 
you might possibly think that it would be the Jewish people, right? After all, they were given a lot of spiritual privileges. Of course, as we read the Old Testament, it's mo- they're everywhere. They're central. They're God's special people. And two of the primary proofs we have of that is the fact that God gave them His Word and the sign of circumcision. Okay? And of course, circumcision in and of itself would seem like a strange privilege, but it's not about circumcision in and of itself. It's about the sign that it was that this group of people were set apart for God. They were special to God. And so because of this confidence and security that came from this religious background and activity, right? These people had a false security. They didn't take God's judgment seriously. And so Paul wants to look at them as the example to help us see our need. Verses 19 and 20, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Okay? Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under, under the law. What, what, do we, what do we mean here? Okay? We've looked at those who are without the law. That's the, the Gentiles, those who didn't have God's word, didn't have his revelation. But it's important to realize that when God gave his word to the Jewish people, his intent was not that they would take that word and say, okay, let's now use this to judge everyone else. Okay? He's reminding them, listen, what that what those those laws in there, you're supposed to obey them too. You're supposed to obey them too. And of course, this is a very real temptation. In fact, it's it's often quite humorous in a sad way how real this temptation is. My, my sister and I, we grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home and we went to a, 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 a private uh, Seventh-day Adventist primary school. And as a result of that, we learned a lot of Bible in primary school. Okay, we learned a lot of Bible, Bible stories, just basic Bible content. And I remember my sister, when she got to high school, uh, mainstream government high school, and she was sitting in, in RE class, religious education class, and she realized that she knew the Bible much better than just about every other kid in her class, right? Now, the thing is, though, my sister was also very naughty, okay? Very naughty and even cheeky, like not just uh, breaking the rules, but, but quite disrespectful uh, to, to her teachers, Okay, but here she sits in religious education class and suddenly she's judging everyone around her like she's this wonderful Christian 
right? Just because she knows some Bible stories that they don't know. It must have seemed like the most ridiculous thing in the world to the teacher who's now thinking, okay, suddenly you're this uh, uh, holier-than-thou Christian, huh? You know, it's ridiculous for her to think, for her to assess herself that way. But so often it is what we do when we look at ourselves and we say, I have this knowledge that you don't. I've been going to church, you don't. Us, them. Us, them. Religion oftentimes breeds pride, self-righteousness, right? That's why Paul begins chapter 2, verse 1, the way he does. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now what's interesting here is throughout chapter 1, Paul's been talking about they, them. In other words, okay, not, not you, but others, right? Uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they should have known God from creation. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, right? And all the while, as Paul's writing chapter 1, he knows, he knows that a, a religious Jew listening to this chapter is sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, those Gentiles, they're so bad, you know? Can you believe God's revealed himself to them and they, they turn the other way? And then Paul gets to chapter 2, verse 1, and he changes his wording, right? Therefore, you, therefore you, don't just stop and think about them. You have to look at yourself. Are you applying the same standard to yourself? Having the word of God like the Jews did was obviously an incredible privilege. But it doesn't do them any good if they don't obey it. It's almost like people think that as long as they've heard the truth, as long as they know it, then they're in a better place than those who don't. But Paul says, no, that's missing the point. If anything, the fact that you have God's word and you know some of what it says, it means that you are more responsible to obey it. There's a higher standard for you. In Romans 3, 9 through 18, Paul summarizes what the law says for religious people. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Right? Are we religious people any better off? And in one sense, right, we'd say yes, in terms of having privileges, we're better off because they have the law, the revelation of God, they've they, they, they know more. But when it comes to actually standing before God on Judgment Day, the privilege of having the law is not going to help them. It's not going to help us. Unless it's been obeyed perfectly. And if we look at the law honestly, 
right? Nobody has obeyed it perfectly. So how does Paul conclude this section? Are they any better off, religious people? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Hard to miss what Paul's emphasizing there, right? None. No one. No one. All. Together. No one. Not even one. We tend to divide the world up into good or bad people depending on our evaluation of their actions. But if we take the actual law of God that God uses as His standard of judgment and evaluate people with that, including ourselves, then we see that there's only really one group and that is the unrighteous, the guilty. we jump ahead a little bit in the book of Romans, we see part of why our problem is so big. See, we, we tend to think of sin as, as things that we, a few things that we've done wrong, right? A few mistakes. But the Bible shows us that sin is bigger than that, more powerful than that. In fact, it's it's more integral to who we are. It's, it's, it's part of our nature and it has power over us. Think about what these passages show us. Romans 6 verse 6 talks about us being enslaved to sin. Romans 6 verse 12 says we should not let sin reign in our body. It shouldn't rule us. It shouldn't make us obey its passions. Romans 6.14 says we must not let sin have dominion over us. These are strong words. Sin is something, as we said, something powerful, something that, that rules us. It's a condition we are in. A lot like death. And that's that's uh, another way the Bible describes our condition in sin. We are dead in sin. According to God's law, apart from Christ, we are dead. And of course, right, there's not much you can do about your situation when you are dead. There's none of us who understand God we seek after Him. We've all turned aside. We've all become useless. Not a single one of us does good. And of course, Exhibit A, proof of all of this, is the Bible storyline itself. Think about this, right? What would happen if God worked with one group of people for, for thousands of years? 
What about if he sent them prophet after prophet, miracle after miracle? What if he disciplined them when they sinned, showed them mercy and patience, told them what they were doing wrong and why it was wrong, explained how he was going to solve their problems in detail, described the one he was going to send to solve their problems and save them, and even went so far as to become a human being himself, to come to those people whom he'd been preparing and then did all the things that he promised he would and fulfilled every prophecy down to the letter. What would happen if God walked with, with a group of people in, 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 in that sort of an intimate way? Well, we know what happened. Uh, what would happen, we know what did happen, right? They took the Son of God, they nailed Him to a cross, and they crucified Him. We tend to think we're not that bad. We tend to think that if we had been in their shoes, we would have done better. But Paul's trying to make a different argument here. He's trying to help us realize that if they didn't get it right, we shouldn't assume we would have either. As another example... Paul brings up some specific proofs of our sinful nature by looking at the way people speak in Romans 3, 13 and 14. See, since we speak so often, our speech is a good way to evaluate the kind of person that we are. As Scripture says elsewhere, out of the mouth the heart speaks. Who you really are, it, it comes out. It comes out through your words, through your speech. According to the law, how do people use the speech that God's given them? Well, Paul says, their throat is an open grave. Which is, is obviously poetic language, it's obviously a picture. But think about that. A grave holds a dead body. And in Judaism... A dead body was something that made you unclean. The worst thing for a Jew was trying to be clean. The worst thing for a Jew that was trying to be clean would be to have contact with an open grave, with a dead body. And yet Paul says, look, doesn't matter how much you avoid dead bodies, doesn't matter how much you avoid graves, because there is an open grave inside of you. Your speech is constantly defiling others and making them unclean. Your speech is constantly defiling yourself. Paul says they use their tongues to deceive. God's standard, of course, is truth. He is the truth and He gave us mouths to speak the truth. And yet, the way people use the words God gave them they're constantly distorting truth and speaking lies. And remember, he's speaking of good religious people here. He's looking at the best case scenario and he's saying, can they get it right? Do you have any hope for yourself to get it right on the basis of, of the most religious people you know getting it right? 
No, no. They use their mouths to deceive. Their mouths are an orphan grave. He gives another vivid picture. He says, The venom of asps is under their lips. An asp is a venomous snake. And he's basically saying here that the way we speak poisons people. What would you think of someone who just had a little uh, syringe with them with poison in it? And uh, they just walked around and, and just jabbed people and just injected a little bit of poison into them. You think, obviously, this is a terrible, horrible person, right? But Paul says, yeah, this is, this is the way we speak. We constantly, right, poisoning people, injecting verbal poison through harsh, angry speech, through unkind, cutting humor, through slander or gossip. And we think nothing of it. To my shame, right, this is too true in my own life. I've got high standards that I try and hold myself to in terms of gentleness and graciousness and patience and trying to, to really, even, even you know, when, when, when I'm dealing with very difficult people, I, I, I want to conduct myself uh, in the kindest possible way. But it is so easy, right? Even, even I, might, I might walk away from one conversation and think, ah, you know, I did, I did pretty good there. You know, that person was, was being disrespectful and they were, uh, you know, they were getting uptight with me about nothing. And, and I, I just, I was patient with them. Cool, right? And then one of my kids just won't stop nagging me and like this turn to them and I snap right I raise my voice I say something cutting and unkind show that I'm irritated with them just jab them with some poison see this is the thing right it's, it's in us <laughs> it's in us and even if we, we do fairly good in certain circumstances, it's still in us. And just like that, out comes the syringe and let me jab you with some poison. That is who I am. It's who you are. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. We're not the kind, patient people we like to think we are. We're not. And again, brothers and sisters, part of the problem is we judge ourselves by our own standard. Now, can you imagine, right? Can you imagine you're a gymnast at the Olympics, okay? And you've got no clue what you're doing. You're tripping over yourself. You're rolling around. You're making an absolute fool of yourself. And at the end, everyone's looking at you, just shaking their heads, cringing, maybe even looking away. They're so embarrassed for you. But then you march up to the podium, you jump on the first place position, 
all smiles and you, you put your arms in the air and you say, I win! I win! Me! I get the gold. Right? But you're not the judge. You're not the judge. And it doesn't matter how you judge yourself. The actual judges see you've made a fool of yourself. Remember here, Paul's example is talking about the best case, right? The very religious people who've had God's word for centuries. The people with the most hope to get it right and live righteously. Do they meet God's standard? No, they don't. No, not one. Everyone is guilty, right? That's the conclusion of all of this. Everyone is guilty. Romans 3, 19 and 20. The same law that condemns pagans also condemns the Jews. They're absolutely damned if they get what they deserve. And if they are guilty, we're all guilty. The reason the Bible is so clear about the continued failure of the Jewish people to obey God's law is not so the rest of us can look at that and say, yo, those guys messed up, eh? We should instead be looking at it and we should be humbled. We should be humbled. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Every mouth may be stopped. Right? The person who's sitting there making, making good arguments, making excuses for himself. No, just, just be quiet. Just stop. You're guilty. A whole, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. And again, this is courtroom language, right? It's courtroom language. So basically, uh, what, we're, what we have here is, is what Paul's done in making this case is you're sitting there and you see somebody stand before, before the judge and it's the most, it's the most religious person you, you know. It's the person who, who has the strongest possible case. And then you you just watch and observe the judge demolish their case. And you realize they don't have a leg to stand on. Now you're not supposed to be sitting there in your chair thinking, all right, I got this now. No. The effect that that's supposed to have when you used to realize, okay, if they didn't get a, a, a righteous verdict, if they weren't justified by the judge... I'm done. I'm guilty too. If you haven't been concerned about Judgment Day because you think somehow God is going to just let your sin slide, you don't know the God of the Bible. God is a just judge. He must punish sin and he will punish sin. And if you're not worried about judgment day because you think you're a good enough person, 
from a good enough family, or whatever it might be, right? Enough church attendance, enough money in the offering plate, that you think you're going to stand before God and hear a righteous, not guilty, justified verdict. And you don't know yourself. That sounds harsh, but it's true. You're not judging yourself according to God's standard. You're not seeing yourself accurately. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, tells us that really none of us can be justified by obedience to the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And here's what's going on, right? A tool is a very helpful thing. But a tool needs to be used for the right purpose. Okay? A screwdriver doesn't make a good hammer. Now, the law was not given to us so that we could obey it perfectly and justify ourselves. That's the way that we try to use the law. But that's not its purpose. The purpose of the law, according to Paul, is to help us see that we cannot be righteous on our own. It's to help us see that we can't be good enough. It's to help us see clearly, right, that we are sinners who fail and fail and fail. Right? If you think about our, our analogy of the gymnast who thinks that they're doing so fantastically because they're judging themselves. It's a good thing, right, for that gymnast to see, okay, no, this isn't God's standard. This is God's standard. And now when they see their performance up against what God's standard really is, they realize they, they don't cut it. Right? But left to themselves, they're always going to think that they're the best gymnast in the world. And so, as much as we might dislike God's Word showing us our sinfulness, as much as we, we might be uncomfortable with that, it is His kindness to us. It's His kindness to us. We are not righteous and we're not going to be justified by works. And it is a good thing for us to know that. We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ until we first know we have no righteousness of our own. I hope you've heard and fully accepted that truth today. I hope it sinks in deeply. You are not righteous. And you cannot be righteous on the basis of Bible knowledge, religious activity, good works, anything to do with you. You cannot be righteous on the basis of anything to do with you. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You are a sinner. And the judge of all the world sees your sin and will judge your sin. Okay. Now, in and of itself, 
That's pretty awful. <laughs> right? In and of itself, that would, if, if we're thinking accurately about that at all, there's only one response, and that's a uh, response of absolute despair. Right? But that's not where the Bible ends, right? God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. This is why we need Jesus, and it's why God sent Jesus. We are guilty before God. We have no righteousness of our own. We can't create a righteousness of our own. But Jesus can take the punishment we deserve for our sins, and He can give us His righteousness. And with His righteousness, we can be declared not guilty. We can be declared justified. Romans 6.23 says, right? For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll spend more time next week looking at how that works. How that's possible. And that, uh, right, that, this is a big part of why it's such wonderful news. Because without it, right, without Jesus, we're utterly helpless, utterly hopeless, right? But with Jesus, with Jesus, we can be justified and have eternal life. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are heavy truths to hear. They're hard. But God, what an amazing truth it is that you did not just leave us helpless and hopeless. You did not just leave us in our sin. God, while we were still your enemies, you sent your son for us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are sinners. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you didn't just leave us to ourselves. Thank you for this amazing mercy, this amazing grace, this amazing love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making a way that we can be right with you. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to look at this over the next few weeks, that you'll help these truths to sink down deeply into our hearts so that our appreciation for the gospel grows richer and richer. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not yet a Christian, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would help them to despair of any, uh, any hope they might have had in their own goodness their own cleverness, their own achievements, their own family history. God, I pray that everyone here would realize that they are absolutely without hope unless their hope is in Jesus. And God, I pray that you would lead them to put their full trust, their full confidence in Him and be saved and 
spend a glorious eternity with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit at work within us, helping us to understand it, helping us to see what is true. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one and only Savior. Amen.